Welcome back to Talking Dog. I am joined today by Jeremy Sisko of Whistling Wing Kennels, and we're going to talk about his, uh, mostly about his adventure dog training program. He is in located in Union Grove, Alabama. Started his kennel, I believe, in eleven years ago, and so we're just going to have a conversation about adventure dog training. Welcome, Jeremy. Thanks for joining me. Yeah, thanks for having me. Let's just talk a little bit. I said, you know, you started your kennel eleven years ago, but you must have been training a long time before that uh yes sir i got started uh professionally training for clients uh right after i got out of the navy which was 2001 and kind of just what i call through the process of learning on my own from about 2001 to 2005 and just building from there training my own dogs training a few family members dogs and then people seeing those and trusting me enough to train their dog and that's that's kind of how it started i would say nice and what was your first dog was it a lab or first dog was a lab training for a gun dog for clients that were hunting and i would say even from the beginning a lot of our hunters that i've trained dogs for for the years were family members to the people first too so they did hunt the dog but also you know outside of hunting season you know these owners were continuing to do outdoor activities so from the get-go i would say uh we have dog program yeah so it's like a, a you know the family dog who sometimes hunts you know outside that what sixty day season. I'm not a hunter myself, but I guess that's yes. that's what it is. And I mean that's got to be you know you have a high drive hunting dog and getting that to be a family indoor dog. It's got its own challenges and yes, probably you know the adventure dog training is just like another level of obedience, right? Uh, yes, it is. It is a lot of our you know owners after the hunting season they take camping trips with the family or they go out west for a fishing trip or a hiking trip or camping or anything like that and kind of finding a ways to teach the dog to be able to do those different skills and change between the different skills you know each day and handle that and it 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 boils down to what i call solid foundation of good obedience I became aware of uh, you and your kennel and the Adventure Dog program after uh, listening to an uh, interview with you and uh, uh, trainer Robert Cabral. And yes. And uh, you went into your puppy program and your philosophy and your selective breeding. Um, and that's where I came across, for the first time, Adventure Dog training. You guys didn't coin that phrase, did you? Or is that... Um. Yes, I would say we did. I mean, that's just kind of because outdoor adventure. I don't know of anybody else that's used that term in that way. Yeah, uh, there may be other people, but that's just kind of how we placed the dog or how we visually seen what we were building. Because it's become this like key word in training. You know, it was just like outdoor dog or advancement and popularity of uh, dogs, but all you know, it's just become incredible, and the, the level of training has to be brought in. Uh, so, when did you guys start your adventure dog program as a specific program? When I opened Whistling Wings Kennel in 2010, I would say we were starting then, but I don't really think we perfected the program enough to start 
just really pushing it to like 2012, 2013. And that was just what led you to that? Was it just another peripheral offering to the kennel in your training or? Yeah, I mean, it just, it seemed where back in, I would say 2003, four, and probably even five, we were seeing our serious hunters, like their, in, their entire focus was a gun dog and that was it. And as the years went on, and I would say 2010 rolled around, we were seeing guys hunt, but not as much. You know, it just the industry changed a lot where people started going more commercial with property of doing paid hunts and people selling their property or not being able to get the leases they used to. Um, so when that happened, it definitely put the duck hunting industry up into a higher tier of clientele. And a lot of our average guys just didn't want to spend that kind of money to be able to keep hunting. So they started getting to where they're doing three or five trips a year. But yet coming to us and talking about, hey, we're getting ready to go out west for a week-long fishing trip or, you know, started talking about that. And so we kind of started developing the gun dog program down to the adventure dog program so the dogs could go. You know, they were struggling finding places or family members to watch their dog on top of a lot of our clients wouldn't even take a vacation because they didn't want to leave the dog and they couldn't carry it with them. So. As they kind of started looking for more activities to do outside that the dog could go with them, that's kind of where we really started pushing it and really refining what we were teaching the dogs to do. Right. So you've got these high drive. I mean, I assume that most of these clients have these high drive dogs that maybe not were appropriate for taking them out into the public without having to cause trouble or stress or frustration, that kind of thing. Yes, yes. And it it was more of the lack of training or the lack of advanced in training of what we were doing on top of the genetics um, that we were seeing with some of the dogs. You know, having a dog that genetically in the past has been known to be able to have that high drive in the field to be stylish on the hunt which also allows them to handle the the different level and higher level of training to also being able to turn that switch and shut it off and be the nice, calm kind of family dog inside. And while they travel, you know, however they travel, just being able to handle that chain. Right. So what are the first steps when you take that high drive dog and start to morph it into the dog that's a family dog that sometimes hunts? What are those, what are those first steps that you take? You know, it's just thinking about the end goal process of what the dog is going to be doing and starting at an earlier age, that earlier age for us is eight to 10 weeks old. So, you know, we're engaging puppy of learning to uh, use like treat training to load onto platforms and dog beds to going inside crates. Yep. Um, teaching patients at an early age, you know, we have what we call tie-outs. And so at an early age, 10 to 12 weeks, we will tie the dog out onto like a stake uh, in the yard in a very close proximity of where we're training other dogs. Mm-hmm. And they learn to sit there and watch us train other dogs and kind of wait their turn because throughout the day they're getting several breaks where we bring them off the tie-out and work on the different skill sets that we're teaching them at that age. The other key is having the dog tied out like that where you can monitor them the whole time they're tied out so nothing bad happens, but it's the activities going on around them and they start barking and kind of wanting to be off, but then they learn through the process of what we're doing we don't untie them until they're quiet. 
It's kind of the right. same way with a crate. You know, you put a puppy in the crate, he's whining and crying, and you go get him out right then. Your your dog is teaching you, hey, when I scream for you, come get me out. But right. it's the, the same concept. If you're in the crate being loud, I'm going to walk up, tell you hush, and then the second they're quiet, which means you've got to stand close by, you grab them out of the crate, and it starts teaching them, be quiet if you want to have fun. Timing is so crucial. Yes, so, yeah, I use tie-downs. I recommend people use tie-downs. Uh, it's like, you know, I refer to it as like the invisible crate. You can offer the dog uh, your praise and love, but its localized territory is, is right there. They can't make yes. those decisions. So, yeah, it's, it's also dominance training. You know, they're, they're only allowed to make those decisions right in that one area. It's an invaluable tool, I think. Service dog in- industries for years have used them. And when you first say tie down or tie out, it's people react in different ways. But yes. when they see the results and you, when I refer to it as the invisible crate, but better and confinement is not punishment, I find, you know, and that's another hard thing to, to put onto clients is while too much confinement and isolation is not very good, but uh, as a yes. tool, like I've got a, a nine month old lab and I'm still using a pen inside the house. Uh, you know, she's earning our trust and she's earning the privilege to be off of tie downs and crates and stuff to enjoy the house and the freedom because uh, she's starting to make the right decisions. But it's it's an invaluable tool to have the dog exposed to those to those patterning off of the other dogs, the more uh, mature dogs, and to observe what's going on and what's acceptable. Yeah. People can go to your website and they can watch the, uh, you've got a short um, video and explanation of what the, what the uh, adventure dog training program is all about. You talk about socializing the dog to different areas. I was trained to say, you, you know, you need to train the dog in the same command in five different locations to okay. really start to move that dog in the right position. What, what are the places that you like to take the dog outside the facility, off the property, to start working that dog, to socialize it and to, I don't know what the term I, I'm losing in my head, but just to socialize and to work it in, in the public? Where, where are the places you like to use? Places that are crazy and, and constantly moving and constantly changing. So for us, it's we've got two different cities that are close to us with Huntsville and Arab and the downtown areas. It's horns blowing, cars going by, people, uh, the sounds of the, you know, the little small stores up and down the street. It's exposing the dog to multiple different things as I'm controlling how the dog is exposed to that. So nothing negatively happens. Right. Um, if there's one thing I always stress to even our straight gun dog clients is there is nothing more important to do from eight weeks when they pick a pup up till they get into a real good formal training and socialization. The more you can expose your dog to and stimulate them and show them in the right way how to deal with things that are new. That's where you really develop a dog mentally to really progress in training. We see a lot of people and it's a natural human instinct. And I see it all the time in our obedience and our outdoor adventure programs where they show up to our place for people that are using us for training. We always have them come visit first and bring the dog. It gives us a chance to evaluate them and the dog. You can tell the dogs haven't been out much and they get here and we've got dogs barking. We've got dog smells. We've got new people and they get out of the car and you can tell the dog is timid and shy. And the first response for the owner 
is to reach down and pet the dog and say, it's okay, buddy. Exactly. And so that is what sets that dog back further and further each time because they're praising the behavior the dog is given at the moment. Yep. And if they had exposed the dog at an earlier age or if the dog had been exposed at an earlier age when they get out to a new place like this, and if they're unsure, you'll see them looking at the handler to say, are we okay? And right. as a strong handler, if you've done your research and your training right, you're going to be putting off the aura of, yes, it is okay, and giving your dog confidence. The one thing that I tell people that's the most important thing is to not praise the fear because you will yes. ruin your dog for the long term. It's something that's very hard to get over. And why set your success? Why set yourself up for failure and the dog up for failure? You know, it's, it's not just the fear. It's the aggression, too. You know, how we praise and soothe children are not the same way that not we do. Not the same. Yeah, and, and, and communicating naturally with the dog is so important. Yes. So let's say, you know, one of the things that I'm having trouble with, because I got the puppy, <laughs> we got her in January of 21, and, you know, that's right at the peak of the of COVID. So I wasn't able to bring her out into the public as much. And, and this is not just me, but people... You're bringing the dog out into public and everybody sees a puppy and they come up and they start jacking the dog up. They use their stupid, happy, friendly voice and they're jacking the dog up. <laughs> what? And it's just sabotage. It's very hard for the owner handler to stop that energy and and back it up before the dog starts to break, you know, and then people, especially owners, I find that they're they're training the dog by not correcting the dog in that situation. What what do you do when you come across a, a stranger coming into your critical distance and jacking your dog up? If the dog has been through a little training, you know, we tell our clients, you know, especially when you're in public areas, that's going to happen. And I would say eight out of 10 times, if your dog's on a lead and healing nicely, the average person sees that. And as they're approaching you, they're probably going to ask permission, permission to pet your dog. If not having the dog sit behind you, you know, as you're walking up and somebody's in a high pitched voice and they're wanting to pet, you can see your dog's getting excited. We tell them to place the dog at heel kind of behind you or turn away for a second, mm -hmm. make a lot lead correction and turn back around and approach the person. Usually those things lets that person know that dog's in training. Let me ask for permission or to at least stop that interaction, a high pitched voice kind of right. uh, high energy body language from the, the, the human um, if it's a younger pup, I'll simply pick up the dog mm -hmm. and that gives me an opportunity to control what my dog's doing, but then also talk to the person and say, Hey, look, let me get him calm. Then you can pet on him because that'll help me with you rewarding right. him for his nice, calm behavior. Yeah, it's tough because uh, things break down when, when you're a client and you're alone in that situation it can be tough it's reverse training really yeah. and then you become the the bad guy because you're trying to keep the puppy from but you know the way that's that's now it, i don't know what it's like in alabama but it, in california it's the handler who's responsible for the dog's behavior not the owner yes and yes. that yes. can you know you don't want to have you know betty crocker slip over you know trip over the leash and break her hip or wrist and then you're going to be responsible for those very expensive uh, medical bills one of the things i recommend 
to clients is that they look into the Good Citizen Certificate program. That's that's when they hear that, it really sends them into another place of visualizing their dog. Everybody wants that Disney dog, but the, the amount of work that it takes and when they see the amount of work in the actual testing of those Good Citizen Certificate and titles, do you guys work in that direction? Have you have you ever done that with one of your dogs, get that certificate? We have. We have in several, several of our clients has. There's several programs in Huntsville that certify the dog for that. And we, as the dog's going through our program, we start working with the handlers to know how to handle the dog going through the certification program. And it does really good with continue. It's all about continuing the relationship for the owner and the dog. And so if we can train the dog to be obedient, very controlled, and then teach the handler how to utilize that outside of our facility, all I feel like we're doing is really building strong relationships for the owners and the dogs, regardless of whether it's gun dog, outdoor adventure, obedience, good canine citizenship. You know, a lot of our, we've actually got some right now in training that are going through our outdoor adventure dog program that are building up to get their therapy dog certification. Right. And so we work hand in hand with the organization that's qualifying the dogs with the owners and the handlers. That's tough. Training the owner seems to be the hardest part, part always. Yes. Uh, you, know. <laughs> you know, recall seems to be one of the biggest things that people have trouble with. And what can you talk about what you guys do for recall uh, consistent, how it starts? Do you use e-collars uh, for that? Or do you even use e-collars in your programs or uh, that sort of thing? Some, some of the programs that we do, we will use e-collar work, but we don't, if the, if the client is absolutely against it, we train the dog without it. It's not a staple of our training programs all the way around. The other factor is where we differ from some other training programs is we don't teach a stay. We teach sit means sit. And so when we've taught the dog sit, we never call them off of sit. We always go back to get them. So it makes it really solid. You don't have dogs that are creeping towards you because they think you're eventually going to call them. And we tell clients the only time I would ever call a dog off sit is if they were in danger. Mm-hmm. Another dog coming towards them, a car or something bad going to happen. As we're teaching sit, we're teaching heel work with the lead. And in heel work, we have a drill called the reverse heel where we back away from the dog and we're teaching them to heel on the same side but coming to us. That's when we start introducing the hear command or the come command. And it's on lead. So we can control the dog and keep them from bolting off or, or you know, running wild or chasing something. Once that's established, we use a lot of treats for recall because it's kind of a – what we call primary reinforcer. The dog is always going to come to get food, especially I would say high driven food drive type dogs. Uh, with others, it could be an object like a tennis ball or a retrieve. Yep. But once we have established the dog understands the hear command, we talk to our clients about uh, if you're in a situation where your dog is chasing another dog or chasing a squirrel or a rabbit, the first instinct of the handler is to say here, right? So the dog's running away from the handler. They want to say here or come to get the dog to come back to them. But that dog is so focused on the object that they're going after, it just literally shuts their ears off. So we yeah. talk to our clients about saying sit or hollering hey really loud. Anything that's going to break the dog's attention enough to look back and go, what's going on, then say here. 
because as the dog breaks his attention and looks at the handler, he's not locked in on that. And yeah. you can say the hear command and the dog come to you. Um, and then reinforcing it when he gets to you with a treat or with a retrieve or with, you know, a good boy, good girl, or a pet on the head. Yeah. Uh, but we really want that reward to be a primary reinforcement. Uh, yes. Yeah. So I teach a, a, a stop. And I think that's really an interesting way to look at it and go and get the dog is really, a you know, you don't build the frustration in the handler because it's not listening to you and she don't have that anger when you have to either even go get the dog. It's just uh, that's that's a really good thing to think about because it yes. can be. It's so frustrating. Yes. And then, you know, you're angry and the dog finally comes to you and you're frustrated. And instead of that love and stuff. Yes. It's hard. It's hard to deal with. So, what do you? What's the biggest mistakes that you see in in your training in this program? Getting the handlers to understand the owners how to control their emotion. Mm-hmm. That's always like the biggest thing I think we see with every single person, and it's really hard because the humanization people put into dogs. If you can ever get them to understand how devastating that is to the relationship, that would fix it right off the bat. I think, but you know, people worrying about their dogs forgetting who they are because they're here for three months or putting their emotion into, oh my goodness, I've got to correct him because he's not doing well, you know, or he's not healing right. So that's been, I would say, our number one thing that has been there through all these years that never gets better, never gets worse. It just stays the same. So we spend a lot of time working with the owners on how to start understanding dog behavior and the pack mentality. Mm-hmm. Um, we always talk about, you know, dogs are not pack animals, no, because they're domesticated, but they still communicate in that pack orient. Yep. Once understanding that and you get that into your head enough that you can start really looking at behavior signs, that's when you can really start building a good relationship. Communicating naturally. It's uh, it's, it's, it's really important and emotions. Uh, Are you familiar with calming signals? Um, Our projection of our emotion being calm, using body language. And people don't realize that when we change the way we breathe, we're tensing up. The dog is so attuned to what is going on with us that we're sending signals to them in all the time. It's really, it's a hard thing. And my mentor was like, yeah, well, it's not moonbeams and crystals. It's, it's, there is something to be said. And when throwing your energy out into the space instead of onto your dog uh, will really help. Yeah. I use calming signals all the time. What kind of dogs are you seeing coming in by clients besides labs? Is it, are you getting mixed breeds You know, what's the hardest breed that you've seen come into your kennel and your program? I wouldn't say that we've seen anything really hard to work with. Or we see quite a few of different breeds, everything from Griffons to Drotars, GWPs, GSPs. Um, We've been seeing a lot of Italian Spaniel Mm-hmm. top dogs uh water spaniels uh we do see a lot of rescues coming through our program especially for the outdoor adventure and i would say the toughest ones are some of the rescue dogs because we really don't know what they went through before this person rescued the dog right and so for those top dogs that makes it hard for us because we have to really work with that handler to let go of that you know, the dogs aren't living in that past. They're just living through 
what they've experienced and not trusting. So we have to build the relationship very strong, build back trust, build back leadership. And it's easy for the dog. We get them to do it really well, but it's getting the handlers to understand to let that go. And I would say, you know, that's probably the harder part of what we do with the rescue dogs. Uh-huh. But it's also probably one of the most rewarding. I've been training duck gun dogs for 22 years. And yes, it's rewarding to watch the dogs develop here in training, but really rewarding when the owners go and have a hunt or have an outdoor activity they do with the dog that they just call and they enjoyed it and they send us pictures. Uh-huh. But what really kind of keeps me going is the dogs that are rescued out of bad situations and they go through our courses and we work with them and their new owners and now you have a dog that is very well sound and very well socialized that can go out into the public and be a normal dog but we see a wide range of dogs every way everything from your pit bull mixes uh pit mixes to german shepherds to Great Danes, um, just all types of different breeds. Some of them are a little different, I think, just because of their genetics of the breed they're from being sometimes independent. Um, but it's still a dog. You can still get inside their mind to kind of figure what's making them tick and teach them stuff. Yeah, you bring up a good point. The history thing is such a hurdle for people. Uh, and also, they're being sabotaged, I find, uh, by when you go into that shelter or rescue and you read the sheet that's hanging outside the kennel. There's nothing bad about it that happens. But, you know, they're, you know this, these dogs are there for a reason. And they're not being dealt with. They're not being sold honestly, if that's the right term. Um, Correct. And I tell them to completely ignore the history, completely ignore the sheet on the kennel clipboard and take the learn how to learn how to pick a dog i mean there's a whole process of testing on behavior and soundness that you can learn and go into that kennel and know what you're looking at yes yeah reading reading the signs one of the things that i would you know having a dog jump into a a boat or a kayak that's on the water is do you do that we do we do and that's you know probably the outdoor adventure dog program that's one of the toughest parts of training that most people can't do on their own um and it all starts with kind of what we've been talking about with the relationship so when the dogs start our program we have some elevated stands uh, the lower stands are about knee high the higher stands are right about our waist for you know a six foot person and I've always explained it to people that dogs, when they're on the ground, it's in their area. They're very comfortable. When you start raising them up on stands or on solid objects, they're mm-hmm. like me, scared of hot, so they get <laughs> real shaky with it. And so in our training program, one of the first things we're teaching them is how to load onto those stands, going up the ramps and the steps and then jumping up. And from the beginning of the dog getting to us to start, they're learning to trust us. They're learning that we're not going to let them fall. We're not going to let them barrel chest the side, or we're not going to let them misstep and fall off the ramp. And as we're building that relationship and that trust, we start moving down to the canoes and the flat bottom boats and our kayaks and loading them in when they're on the ground. And, and, and usually most dogs load into it very well because we have them on lead and we can help them get into the boat. And on the ground, we'll start rocking it and showing them that thing can be unstable. Uh, And then once we see them doing good with that, we move the boat to where half of it's in the water and half of it's on the bank. 
and they learn both sides together where the land side's good and solid and the side that's in the water can be really unstable. And then we just start pushing them out into the boat. So it's kind of the chaining effect when it comes to training for people that are doing it on their own. I tell them, think about what you're doing and you're trying to teach the dog and break it into small steps to teach. I've got the word that we've always called the KISS method, which is keep it simple, stupid. Right. Uh, meaning don't over flood that dog with too much at once. Teach little bitty pieces of that chain and then put the chain together. And I think that really helps them adjust to things like canoes and kayaks and hearing the boat crank up on a ski boat. And just, you know, the first trip to the pier to see boats moving in general and hearing motors crank. And then the next time you visit, you're getting them closer to the action and maybe even loading onto a boat, you know, just taking your time developing what you want the dog to do. I want to, I don't have access to a boat right now, but I think I'm going to try to get a canoe just to put in the yard in my training area. You know, I've got stumps that are unstable and that that's been a real, that was, that's always an interesting thing. You know, I've got a bench, a log bench that's unstable to get them past that. And what's interesting is you, to teaching the dog to relax when it's unstable so that when they relax, the the shaking stops it's uh but it's it's very hard to get that dog to relax when it's unstable um, yes yes well and that will help having it out on the ground getting her where she's loading in and out very fast and you see that she's comfortable with it it's using something you know your dog or you know these owners dogs love so a lot of them love tennis balls so getting the dog retrieving beside the canoe then you have them load in it throw a tennis ball let them jump out and go get the tennis ball to me that's like some of the dogs one of the biggest things that we see sometimes with our gun dogs is people have done gun work too early and they've got a gunshot dog and one of the first things we do to start fixing that is reverting them back to a natural state of mind and that is either a retrieve with a feathered bumper or swimming. And so what we'll see is we can pitch the tennis ball out into the pond. The dog hits the water and he's swimming towards the tennis ball and you fire off a gun at a distance. That dog is not focused on anything outside the pond. He's only focused on getting the tennis ball. And so using the retrieve, he is hearing the sound. He's just not locked in on it. It helps them say, okay, this is okay. This is a good sound to be hearing don't be nervous or timid of it and it's the same way of getting in and out of a canoe if you throw a tennis ball nine times out of ten the dog is going to jump out of the boat or get the tennis ball and probably jump back in before he's even thought about what he's doing well that brings up a thought we've talked on the show with several different people about uh, training your dog to be stable during fireworks it's probably the same relation to guns what what's your do you have any recommend for dogs that are uh really flip out when there's around fireworks or close by trying to minimize the exposure that's causing the behavior problem so and we this is one of the top five questions that we get and a lot of times what happens especially our gun dog guys is, oh my dog's been hunting for three seasons now he's great around gunfire let's sit here and watch some fireworks with him and the problem with that is there's so much more environmental from a firework the dog has never seen that has nothing to do with hunting in the woods or hunting in a field. Mm. If you've got a dog that's got a problem with it, we tell them to put them in a crate in the back room mm. or take a trip with the dog that gets them away. We just recently 
uh, sold a puppy to a family that's down in Winter Garden, Florida, that's literally right beside Disney World. <laughs> and so Disney World shoots fireworks every night. And that was one of their questions is how do we keep him from developing an issue because our last dog did. And I said, don't change anything. Don't change anything in his daily routine. Don't change anything in his feeding schedule. As I said, if anything, you might move the feeding schedule to where if the fireworks are going on at seven o'clock at 655, you're putting his food down to eat. So as he's eating, those fireworks are going on outside. Yeah. And if you see him jump back and look, ignore it. Don't praise it. Don't call, don't try consoling him. Let him go. Ignore it. And then the next time, put him in a crate in the back room, maybe put a quilt over the crate to give him the sound security until he's older. And I said, and start exposing him to things in public, you know, slamming doors, moving doors of stores, uh, car doors slamming. And every time you're exposing him to new sounds, don't give him, make sure you're not reinforcing a bad behavior or timid behavior, and you'll see him develop where he doesn't have a problem with it. Right. And that's what's so hard is back to calming signals and praising fear. Uh, Correct. You know, that's our, our compassion and empathy, you know, switch gets turned on when it shouldn't. One of our vet friends on the show uh, recommends giving him a half a can of beer. <laughs> instead yeah. of having to go and you know maybe use a pharmaceutical a more gentle easy ways you know to see what a can what a half a can of beer does just to kind of take them take them down a notch i have yeah. not had yeah. to do that yet <laughs> i uh while i did bring her out we're about a mile and a half away from our town's uh fireworks show on july 4th and I brought her out just to see what she would do, and uh, there was a little bit of a freak out, so immediately brought her in and confined her and you know made it a little bit not not praising the fear or anything, but just just dealing with it in a firm, consistent, just like any other time I'd put her in a crate so yes, when do you start exposing dogs to gunfire um our environment's a little different, so here it's early ages i mean we're a lot of our training grounds are very close to where we hold our dogs and where they have their own space that they stay in when they're with us. And a lot of it is just them being that close to it, you know, within a hundred yards of where we're working older dogs. And it's definitely in a setting where our trainers that work for us and all of our employees know if they see a dog that has some timid issues when we're out working the gun, ignore it, let us know so that we can do some adjustments for the dog. But it all starts with our puppies. So from three days old till eight weeks, you know, one day we walk in and we're loud. I'm clapping my hands. I'm banging the walls. And about, especially about the time that they're three to four weeks old, when we're starting the weaning process from the mom, there'll be a time where they're kind of just together as a litter and the mom's outside of the pen and we'll walk in and we'll bang the sides of the wall. And I'm actually wanting to see that whole litter go to the back corner. And then we sit there and we wait and we watch them come forward. Hmm. If there's some kind of lagging behind, not coming forward, we encourage them to come forward. That in itself from the beginning is teaching them when it's something that startles you, you don't know what it is. Go check it out because right. it's not bad. You know, and we're there as the human, the handler, the trainer to ensure that it's not bad for the dog. And so I think it really starts that early. But in each developmental stage of a dog, they're getting those loud noises some way. So 
four weeks old, then when they're 10 weeks old, they're outside running on some tennis ball retrieves and a gun goes off 200 yards away. Mm-hmm. And then just slowly moving the sound closer to the dog as he or she is getting older and developing mentally and training. Uh, and then making that connection with the retreat. Um, my opinion and part of my training is gunfire should always be introduced during a retrieve because it's a gun dog. That's where they're going to hear the gunfire mm-hmm. years and years ago. People used to talk about during feeding time, get behind the pups and bang two pans or shoot a gun. But to me, I don't understand how that has anything to do with the gun and picking a retrieve down the road. It's no different than people having dinner in their home and I sneak up behind them in their home and shoot off a nine millimeter. Right. That's going to scare them <laughs> yeah. to a point where every time they're eating supper, they're probably checking behind them. So it's all about the association of the sound being in front of the dog where they can see what's going on and then associating it with the retrieve and doing that as steps again keeping it simple and chaining it together to the end goal of the dog sitting at heel as you shoot. Well, it's fascinating because there is a time and a place for the banging of the pot and pan. You know, metal creates a frequency that can cut right to the core of the brain um, to yeah. snap them. And, you know, you, you, that's why the uh, the can of pennies seems to work so well. Yes. I don't know if you've ever used uh, throw chains or anything like that, but, you know, the sound of that frequency coming towards the dog's foot, you know, you're not throwing a chain at the body or anything. You're throwing it at the dog's feet to correct them and to have that frequency come towards them in a place it just snaps them out of that hyper focus yes yeah it was interesting i haven't i can't remember where i read it where but it's like uh explosions and detonations create a frequency that is different than anything else and i'm i'm curious of whether the gunfire frequency is related to the tnt slash firework frequency it and, is is the percussion it's the percussion of the shot it's the percussion of the tnt going off um some of the work i've done in the earlier years was with bomb dogs uh and then what we call accelerate detection and then vaporweight dog and a lot of those dogs that we were evaluating and doing the beginning work to get into the programs um if they were puppies that we raised, we could develop the dogs a lot faster than dogs that we were picking from rescue groups or from other trainers that didn't make it as a gun dog or something like that. What I've seen over the years, the dogs that we developed and built up from birth to that point, we could introduce those different frequencies and the percussions at an earlier stage so the dog, it didn't phase them at all. But dogs that were coming in from rescue groups or from not being a good gun dog or something like that, it was it had to be a natural instinct because at that level, they were never going to adjust to percussion of TNT or bombs going off. And the key was you didn't want the dog to quit working. So it was something that was offsetting them enough that they would just stop working. Uh, and one of the things that we used to kind of test that is a bunch of empty Coke cans in a bag and mm. dropping it from a high level that quick crack the percussion was enough that we would throw the tennis ball and they're retrieving the tennis ball and then behind the dog you drop the bag if the dog kept retrieving the tennis ball that lets us know that sound wasn't enough to stop the retrieve or stop the work but a lot of it is the percussion it's the that crack 
That's really interesting. I really like that idea, and I think I'm going to try that. What kind of bag do you use? Is it a a cloth or is it a garbage bag? Uh, Just a, yes, sir, a regular garbage bag. And having it what I would call half full, Mm -hmm. not completely full, so that you get. Right. So we were using warehouse type setups. So definitely concrete floor, definitely where the sound echoes and definitely in a position where the dog can't see what's going on. That crack, that sound, you want to see the dog to continue the retrieve. Uh, And that lets you know from that point with an older dog that you don't have the history with how they're going to handle something that is extremely unsettling for them, how they're going to handle it afterwards. Right. Yeah, it'd be interesting. I mean, that's a big test for the shelter dogs, rescue dogs that are coming in. With your puppy, you have a puppy program that you're raising puppies as blank slates for service work. Is that correct? We do. Not so much for service work as just for all the programs that we offer at Whistle and Wings. We literally only do maybe two or four litters a year, depending on our clients that have researched us, researched our genetics and said, we want a pup from you. Um, but yes, and we're working from the time they're born till they're eight weeks old to get them ready for the goal that the owner's using the dog for. We have done a lot of what I call service assistance dogs, uh, which are very close to the PTSD dogs, or uh, we have also trained a lot of the doodle mixes, uh, mm-hmm. golden doodle, labradoodles for young children that are paraplegic or have other some kind of health issue that they need help with their movement or getting things for them or just simply having the confidence to go to school as a kindergartner, you know, and being different than everyone and having a dog well-trained enough obedience-wise that the dog can go to school with them. Are you just raising the dog before they go to the second level or are you completing the dog for placement? Uh, completing the dog for placement is the only way that we'll do that. Most of, and we only breed Labrador Retrievers, so our dogs, yes, they can go into those programs for people, but we, a lot of people that need those type of dogs are looking for the hypoallergenic part of the doodle. Uh Um, And there's a handful of breeders close by that we work with that we know their socialization program from birth to eight weeks. And then from eight weeks, we are picking the pup up and we're putting the dog in training. And then the owner handler is coming and being involved about every two to three weeks from eight weeks old to a year old to just develop the relationship. Well, you know, I, it was a, what a year or two ago that the guy who developed the doodles, uh, he, he said something along the lines of, I should have never done it. And I don't know if you're familiar with that or not. But, yes. Uh, yes. And <laughs> I just thought that was really interesting because they're so popular right now. I love the hyper, yes. uh, the you know, uh, allergenic, hyperallergenic feature of them. But yeah, they, a lot of them they just become muppets, and yes. you know, the long hair and mops. And um, I like the F ones, the wire hair doodles. I think are really neat. I'm partial to the Labrador end of it. Um, Yes, yes. A lot of the ones we've had experience with have been Labradoodles and Golden Doodles. And to be honest, I'm probably going to kick myself for saying this, but I've got a dog in right now named Denny that is a miniature Aussie Doodle. And out of all the doodles that we've trained over the last seven years, this dog has been like phenomenal 
with focus and trainability. And I, I really think it's the breeder. The breeder done a very good job of socialization, and he's he's just been a dream. He's been going through our six-week course, maybe weighs 15 to 20 pounds, but phenomenal as far as learning heel and sit and group work and place training and retrieving. Uh, he's, he's been a real good one. So wait, say, say the mix again. I missed that. A miniature Aussie doodle. Oh, my God. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's cool. And that's, my wife made the joke. He looks like a Build-A-Bear. That's what everybody <laughs> thinks. Uh, on top of, he's a well-trained dog now and does so good. Well, I think you should make a video for your YouTube channel, and I'd love to see that in action. That would be yes, really neat. Yes. Well, I know I've taken a lot of your time up. One of the things we talk about on the show are pet peeves. Like one of my pet peeves is seeing a dog ride in the passenger seat unsecured in a a car, especially a heavier dog that can you know trigger the airbag or in the front seat on the dog's on the owner's lap. Another one is using the stupid happy friendly voice all the time. Baby talking a dog drives me freaking crazy. Do you yeah. have any pet peeves you want to share with us? I do. That my pet peeve is people who get dogs without understanding their part of that relationship to a point dogs bite or they can't be around new people. That is one of my pet peeves. That's just as humans, it's it's never the dog's fault, period. Mm-hmm. Uh, we are the ones that brought them into our world and it's up to us to make sure they're doing right. And so people that use that pet voice, as you're talking about it all the time, or don't want to make the correction with the lead on a very dominant level dog to a point that he's biting them and other people or can't be around new people. Mm-hmm. That's a very big pet peeve of mine. Right. Yeah, it's important. Bites are expensive, not only on your, your wallet, but your self-esteem, your confidence, all these things. It's, it drives a wedge into your relationship. Yeah. Well, I appreciate your time. I've learned a lot, and I think our listeners have learned a lot. You've got an amazing program there. Let's see. Jeremy's website is theultimatedog.com. Um, is that what it is? Theultimatesportingdog.com. Yeah, theultimatesportingdog.com. Please check it out. Again, there's uh, your, your talks with uh, Robert Cabral on his YouTube channel are really fascinating. He's a good That's guy. why I really contacted you by listening to that one conversation where you're out in the field or, you know, next to some water and you're talking about the philosophy of, and I was like, Oh my God, we, you're talking my language. I appreciate you coming on the show and talking to us. Yes. Yes. Thank you for having us. All right. Good luck. And maybe you will, uh, maybe we'll talk again sometime. Yes, sir. Thank you. All right. Take it easy, Jeremy. Thanks again. Yes.